Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. All right. Today's podcast is brought to you by... Podbean. Exactly. Podbean. You know, recently I've been having some friends say, yeah, you can go, asking me, hey, how do I get a podcast started? And I say, it's easy. You go to podbean.com and they can give you all you need to get your own podcast started. And now it's even easier than before. With the new Podbean app, you can record and post directly from your phone. So... If you're interested in getting to know how you start a podcast, go to Podbean. They provide hosting in a simple, affordable way for churches, religious organizations, and any kind of leader to share their message. So go check out Podbean. They've been an outstanding host for me in this podcast for many years, and they'll be the same for you. Okay, so what we have today is a uh, two-part podcast in which the first part is us uh, talking to Derek Richemois, who is uh, the author of an 11,000-word critique of Brian Zahn's new book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And so we're going to talk to him about um, his critique of old BZ's book, and then we've got BZ coming on to respond. Now, originally I thought both of these guys would talk for about 20 to 30 minutes, and we'd just make this one podcast Two guests, but um, I've got like two 45-minute episodes, and so I'm just going to post them uh, one Monday, one Tuesday. So you get two episodes out of this, and so this first one is Derek, and we'll hear from BZ later. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have, we've got a Calvinist. (laughs) The unicorn of no, I'm kidding. Uh, Derek Rip, I, I'm not going to say it right. Say your last name for me. Maui, Rish Maui, Rish yeah. Maui, and you're coming to us from what uh, campus? Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, in Deerfield, Illinois. But don't don't hold it against my professors. Um, they're, they're they're better than I am. I we will we will not hold it against you if you don't tell my seminary professors okay. what right. I say. Yeah, deal. And you're you're finishing finishing up a PhD right I'm now. I'm in the middle. I'm smack in the middle of one, so I'm still in coursework. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm still basically just a, a, a college pastor who snuck into some some classes and got some extra reading done at this point in my life. So it's kind of how it is. Good yeah. for you. Uh, what is the actual program? Um, it is a it's a PhD. In um, my my theological studies and my emphasis is systematics, so systematic theology. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, uh, let me tell you a story, Derek. Sure. You know stories. I love them. Okay. So my dad's birthday was just a few weeks ago, and my dad uh, he likes to read a good book every once in a while, and so I ordered my dad a copy of a new book by Brian Zahn. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Sinners, <laughs> Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God. And so I order my dad this book, and I send it to him, and then lo and behold, I see online just like a week or so ago a review that said. Um, the gospel is at stake with this book. And so I, my first thought was, did I just send my dad to hell <laughs> by giving him that book for uh, his man. birthday? No. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that, was a, that was a strong line, but I think, I think, I think that line's warranted. What, just be, what, do you, what are my dad's chances? Well, let me like, put it this way. I think Brian Zahn thinks the gospel is at stake in his book, right? So I... 
I took Brian uh, Zond at his word. He, I, I, I want to say the, the, the thing I can say about that book is that he thinks that these issues are important and he is passionate mm-hmm. about them and he is passionate about people seeing God and hearing the gospel rightly. And, um, and he's talking about the central things. What's God like? What's the gospel about? So um, mm-hmm. I, I just, I agree with him is all and so so that's that's kind of what that's what i mean is is we're we're talking about some of the most central issues in our faith what's god's like what has he done to save us uh how does he love us you know and 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 what does his love look like and so yeah i mean i'm not i don't when i say certain issues at stake I, i also hold very loosely um connections between between where somebody is in their current theological journey and like where they're, where they're eventually going to be. Or I, I, am mm-hmm. I know where I was 10 years ago. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I was not where I am. Um, I was, mm-hmm. I was actually far closer to probably a lot of your podcast listeners. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I, I don't, I try not to make judgments about people based on the judgments I make about some of their stated beliefs. Right. So I might I might fiercely disagree with somebody and think, wow, that is a really wrong. But um, I don't really know. I'm not going to say that person doesn't love Jesus or or is in. So, yeah, that that's kind of a little bit of context mm-hmm. or how I think about these things, I suppose. Guys, so two things. One, my dad still has a shot to go to heaven. Right? I, I, We're in agreement I, I'm, on that. I'm, I'm with you there. Oh. OK, two, I, I, I like your differentiation between. Uh, the theological tenets that people hold and the individual person. Yeah, and it's it's easy for me because I'm I don't read a whole lot of John Piper. <laughs> I'm not on the Calvinist yeah. train, but I know that I, I used to be a church planner before uh, I came down to Austin, where I'm a pastor now. And probably the pastor that I was closest to, a fellow church planner pastor, uh, was an Acts 29 <laughs> church planner. And he was the most generous and hospitable person. We would work out together. Uh, I was on the phone with him last week, um, talking about the next phase in his life. And I might not agree with the conclusions that he, he espouses, mm-hmm. but I can't critique the character and the commitment he has to follow the way of Jesus in yeah. his life. Yeah, and, and it's, 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 it's the, there, there are tough tensions there because I think on the one hand, Paul says, "Guard your life and your doctrine." I don't think he—I don't think we totally can dis- distinguish them. And at the same time, mm-hmm. we all know people. We all know people like that, where it's like, "Man, I think you've got like 15, 15 boxes checked on the wrong side." But I, I you're yeah. you're a great you're a great you're a great person. I, you know, I, I yeah. we we get along, you know, and and I yeah. and I trust your authenticity on that. And so, yeah, that's that's one of those it's one of those struggles we have. Yeah, I might have more than 15 things wrong in my boxes, according to you, but, <laughs> but like Paul talks, <laughs> but Paul talks about like what I received, I passed on to you as of first mm-hmm. importance, death, burial, resurrection, this is First Corinthians 15, um, and I don't think we always are able to differentiate, mm-hmm. like this is a first importance, other stuff, it's not a first importance, and there are certain things that do warrant that sort yeah. of attention, but often disagreements seem to come when there are secondary things that we elevate to a first importance. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's hard. Some of the, some of the biggest fights are not even about the issues themselves, but about where we ought to put the issue. You know, yeah. <laughs> not 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 the exactly. material, but the, but formally where it where it fits. How central is it? And so um, those those are sometimes even more heated because we there 
they feel like more is at stake somehow. It's, it's odd how that works out, but yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You make a really good observation about how we often process previous tenants that we clung mm-hmm. to. You, you say something about how I used to believe position, position X for a stupid, hateful reason, um, and then now I've moved on to something else, so therefore everyone who holds to position X must also hold to it for a stupid, hateful yeah. reason. Yeah, I mean... I think I mean I think we've all seen these theological conversion stories uh, across aisles, right? Mm-hmm. You'll have the I mean I, I've seen the yeah. cage stage Calvinist who's like, you know, back when I was back when I was an Arminian and uh, you know I'd never cracked open the Book of Romans, um, I just thought Jesus was a fluffy bunny, and then I read Romans nine and I thought, dear goodness, John Piper's right. How have these fools missed it? Yeah. That's a dumb version, but they, but we've we've seen we've all seen people hold positions on on that side, and I've seen the same you know go the other way with when it comes to you know reform doctrines or uh, whether it's coming to new yep. views on um, on gender and sex. You know, you 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 meet someone who all of a sudden kind of bursts the the preconceived notions you had of people you used to fit in this box, and now all of a sudden. You realize, ah, my 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 reasons for 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 holding this person at arm's length or condemning this behavior, whatever it is, don't hold up. But what you realize is, um, maybe your reasons weren't very good, but maybe there are people yeah. who hold still hold a similar position, uh, but they hold it differently. They held it with more nuance. They held it on stronger. Uh, biblical grounds they held it with uh gentler pastoral convictions they held it and 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 so i i think that that's important uh that's important just for knowing you know where you're coming from and then where other people are coming from uh in your conversations uh and that's it's hard to i struggle with that sometimes is being sensitive where different people are coming from on that yeah when i was i didn't do a phd like you are but when i was doing my mdiv it was so so that means you're smarter no, than no, me, obviously. No, but, um, but when I was in my MDiv, I was very siloed. And so it was easy for me to create the scarecrow argument for the other position. Yeah. And yeah. I think as long as you don't have a person and a relationship on, with someone on that issue, it's easy to do that. Yeah. But once you know, like, I, I'm not a complementarian, but I do have complementarian friends who who treat their spouses very well, who don't hate women or think that they're untalented or gifted. Like they have a theological conviction that leads them to act a certain Mm -hmm. way, but I can't insert negative narratives about why they do what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the irony is that I started to swing reformed when I was at a Wesleyan holiness seminary, um, partially (laughs) in the middle of, in the middle of, uh, reading Wesleyan holiness theology and at the same time being friends with some reformed people and having conversations around those things. So, I mean, I've, I've been in that, I've been in that tension of just realizing ah, sometimes it doesn't match up, but I, I've, I've got to yeah. struggle with the actual reasons that people say for, for why they say they believe what they believe. And, and if are those the best yep. ones and so forth? So, yeah. Yep. Well, let's jump yeah. in. This. Let's talk about, a f- let's talk about, uh, okay. So you reference, uh, let's talk about his stuff with the old Testament. Um, uh, BZ's take is, uh, he can say, he can say his own take. Let's just put it that way. But uh, there's a reading that says, "Let's the, the main picture of who God is is Jesus," mm-hmm. and uh, BZ is in that camp somewhere. And the often thrown out critique is that he is a Marcion, a Marcionite. Help us understand how you would describe this sort of Marcionite reading. Yeah, and I want to I want to say this. I, I I don't think I straight call them a Marcionite. I did say. 
he offers us a cross testamental semi like neo Marcionism or semi Marcionism. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. and I do mean those qualifiers. He obviously holds to a unity of yeah. the God of creation or redemption. He repudiates Marcionism. He doesn't have some of the weird weirdo uh, Gnostic emanations whatever from the original Marcionite construct. What what I'm talking about is more of a it's like a theological judgment that um, he he posits. Uh, as Marcion did, he posits contradictions between texts where um, I would see I would rather see tensions, and he posits co- straight contradictions between, say, the the prophets and the and the cultic texts, or um, uh, just consciousness of, yeah on the consciousness of sacrifice and violence between uh, universalistic sounding prophecies about uh, the nations and then uh, texts. Talking about vengeance upon, uh, you know, retributive justice upon uh, the the persecutors of God's people, and he sees, and he admittedly he says, you know, you, you can't you can't you can't unify these, you, you can't make them work together. They they don't sing harmoniously, um, and he sees these contradictions for some of the same reasons that Marcion did. Marcion posited a good God who is not simultaneously the sort of God who whose goodness included retributive justice. And so he has one similar motive and then one similar solution to that tension, which is choosing some texts over others, um, privileging some texts over others with an appeal to Jesus's character in the New Testament, specifically some of it, I think. And so it's not straight Marcionism. Um, it is a semi or quasi. I, I mean, if there was a different way of putting it, a, you know, Marcionite sympathy or instinct or whatever, it, it's not straight Marcionism. Uh, but that's why I, I tried not to say it was. But I, th- I think there's a unified, there's a connected spirit. And I, I quoted Abraham mm-hmm. Heschel there. Heschel was talking about um, some of the German cr- critical scholars of his age who had some very similar um, judgments about the you know the 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 cultic religion uh, in the Old Testament and uh, some of the exclusivistic uh, nationalist texts in the Old Testament, and so he was noting an analogy and a similarity, and I am noting a similar analogy and similarity, um, and so that that's that's kind of what I mean about that is that there's a harsh there's a harsh disjunct, and there's no attempt to um, well not no attempt there's maybe attempted but he gave up. The attempt to, to to unify and see a harmony between the two, between these various texts. Instead, mm-hmm. there's a choosing, and there's a distinct choosing with an appeal to Jesus. Yes. Yep. So that's. And, and we'll get to your part of some of Jesus later, which I think is substantial. But um, I think you had the language of a, a complex polyphony, which it's a great it's a great phrase. I mean, it just sounds really nice. Um, <laughs> Versus BZ's divided contradiction. As I'm reading y- your take, it's not as though you're completely jettisoning the understanding that there is tension that exists in the Old Testament against other Old Testament texts. Is that fair to say? Yeah, but I want to say there, it, depending on, I, mean, I think we need to be sensitive readers, right, to genre, to particular text, time. Uh, so I think there are some pro- prophetic critiques of the cult, but like certain recent um, scholars like Jonathan Clowens and others, I don't think they are radical critiques that just totally reject the cult. I think they are pointed contextual historical critiques of a way of thinking about the sacrificial system that just thought of it as like ex operato, um, 
effective or just just effective without without a, a corresponding heart to obey and be in right relationship with God. So I, I see it more of as a, as a limited contextual critique rather than a wholesale rejection of, you know what, you might have thought that this was how you were in relationship with God, but really what God wants instead of sacrifice is, is uh, just obedience or just mercy, whereas instead it's more like, it's not merely sacrifice. Sacrifice is always connected to this deeper heart of obedience and love and trust and relationship, which you have just, you treated this like it's, it's some, some formulaic system. And you think that you Mm -hmm. can, you think that while you have the blood on the hands, blood on your hands of the sacrifices, you can just go ahead and, uh, you know, cover, cover the blood you have on your hands from, from stomping on and and murdering the poor. And he says, the one Mm -hmm. blood doesn't mean that the other blood's okay. Right. It's only as you're trying to keep your hands free from bloodshed uh, against the poor that the, the bloodshed of the sacrifice uh, means anything. And that, that's more what I yeah. see going on. And that's the kind of tension that I see. But it's not a true contradiction. And I think that can be seen in most cases. Some are more some are harder to reconcile than the others. But I, you know, I'm only 31, so I, I haven't tried them all. <laughs> well, when you get to be my age um, of 36, uh, you'll see him. Yeah, I just turned 36 a couple days ago, so thanks for bringing that up. Um, <laughs> Happy birthday. Y- y- thank you. you. You referenced Joshua Ryan Butler, who's been on the podcast yeah, a couple times, uh, as someone who you, you appreciate the direction he's going. When you talk about uh, Old Testament, the genocide text, the conquest narrative, yeah. How, how, how do you understand, how do you des- describe that? Yeah, so I don't like the word genocide. I, I think it's inaccurate. Um, uh, so because? Because of what it's, well, A, because of the definition of genocide. Um, it, it, even if we read the text straight, it wouldn't fit in terms of just, you know, the, the whole. How so? Well, there's something that Paul Copan goes into a bit. Um, the, purpose of, the purpose of being specifically aimed at and focused on wiping out a specific ethnic um, identity and whatnot. Uh, but really, I, I, for other reasons, more... Um, well, okay, but let's just say the, the text when God, as it's understood, God commands Israel to wipe out an entire group of people. Is that fair? No, and I, I don't think that's even accurate either. Um, so okay. I think, because I think the text here, um, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Oh, I think K. K Lawson Younger, he's got a dissertation on the issue of uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, historiography and uh, hyper, hyperbolic language. Um, I think a lot of what's going on in some of these texts where we have language about show them no mercy, wipe them out completely, mm-hmm. and then they wipe them out completely, et cetera. Um, this was common ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric. I, I, I don't think that it's necessarily supposed to be made, meant to be taken as a, as, as a straight literal um, reading of what happened, especially when you consider the fact that right next to these texts in Joshua – in numbers, in, in judges, and so on, you, you read that they didn't actually wipe them. They didn't actually wipe them out. The the, the Canaanites were still all over the place. Um, and in fact, there are other texts right next to them, or you know, chapter two over, talking about uh, how the fact of the fear of the Lord will go before you and drive them out. Um, and you know, they will drive them out slowly, so that you know the land, you know, the the wild beasts of the field don't overcome you, and and so on and so forth. And so, really, um, we're talking about. We're talking about a limited acts, limited incursions uh, on small, concentrated, tactical, um, 
war camps. What that's that's one of the one of the, one of the things the archaeologists have shown. I think is is um, I'm trying to think. Jericho, uh, sites like Jericho, there's only a few of them where we actually have these commands to 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 go in and from Israel to go in and and and, and totally destroy and whatever. And and most of these places were small, limited, uh, strategic, um, like war sites where you got like a like a like a tribal warrior king encamped. And so they were they were they were small tactical zones. And then again, you've got all the texts about driving out, not really not really completely wiping out a population and on top of that you've got considerations of ancient near eastern war rhetoric and a number of other things so what you really start to understand is this is a very different picture than just straight up um god told the jews to go in and wipe out nations of nations of people and they did it and you know millions lied slaughtered in the dust um so, so what do you, based on historical evidence, uh, understanding of ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric, if you had to guess what precisely took place, say with Jericho, and you had to write a historical account of that, what would you put your money on being exactly what took place? Oh, man, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, I do think there were battles. I do think you had the Israelite peoples going in. Um, fighting against uh, local Canaanite populations. I do think in some cases there were uh, serious victories. Um, I do think that they were much smaller than the sort of large-scale battles than we tend to tend to think of. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had basically small encampments versus, you know, skirmishes. Um, I do think you probably had large portions of population evacuating certain areas, uh, with the onset of this coming people, I do think, you know, the fear of the Lord went forth. And, and so you probably had uh, most of the civilians, most of the, you know, local populations fleeing and leaving the armies and so on and so forth. So I do think there was a conquest. I do think people were driven out. I do think that um, Israel slowly took some of the land, as we see in Judges and other texts in, in the Old Testament, it, it wasn't like a Canaanite free zone. Uh, in fact, that's part of what they're condemned for, for failing to some degree. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I think it's a very different picture than just straight up um, genocide. Right. That, that's just that's a that's a whole nother level. Uh, we're talking Bosnia. We're talking Serbia. It's a whole nother level of carnage destruction. Also, motives and and methods and and mm-hmm. and also without any of the any of the similar limitations that God places on the Israelites, uh, they're not to go out in wars of conquest beyond beyond the land allotted to them for the sake of uh, being the people of God in a promised land from whom, you know, the nations of the earth will see uh, their life with God. There's there's just a whole bunch of considerations that are left out when you just say, so genocide texts. Are you are, are you cool with God ordering genocide or not? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's an accurate. I don't think that's yeah. an accurate way of describing what we have in these texts. I think Josh Ryan Butler's book goes into that uh, very helpfully. Uh, Paul Copan's and Matthew Flanagan's Did God Really Command Genocide is also another good text on that. And uh, you've got all sorts of other uh, philosophers and theologians who've dealt with those texts in a much more helpful light. I'm not saying they're still easy. At that point, you have to wrestle with issues like what do you think of just war? What do you think of uh, the logic given in the text? Uh, what do you think of yeah. God's God's rights over human life? What do you think about whether sin mm-hmm. merits death, that kind of thing? Um, but the question, the questions become very different and and far less freighted with with that 
So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I can hear how the language of a genocide text can um, be a little non-helpful in creating a dialogue between different schools of thought on how this happened. And it sounds like the, the school of thought where you're coming from is, for better or worse, we're, we're not going to make this seem as atrocious as it would be if it was defined as a genocide genocide yeah and i think it's i think it's i think it's uh i think we're just dealing with a very a very different reality i think we're dealing mm-hmm. with a very different historical reality and um so yeah i mean i'm not trying to minimize it in the sense of hey genocide isn't that bad i i'm trying to say hey we're not talking about genocide we're talking about this very yeah. different sort of thing uh that we can then consider the ethics of in light of other yep. principles like just war theory and God's right over life and land and all that. Yeah. So I want you to put on your, uh, take off your PhD student hat and put on your college pastor. <laughs> hat. So if you've yeah. got one of your, your undergrads come up, comes to you and says, Hey, here's a text. Uh, God said, wipe them all out. What does that mean? What, well, like what's your 60 second answer for that kid? My 60 second answer is, you know, that's a very good question. I don't think these texts can be, given 60 second answers. I mean, to be honest, half my job with these students when they come, they come with a hard question is to say, Hey, that's a good question. Let's slow down. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about some issues for a while. Let's look at these texts over here. Let's, let's think about, um, let's think about what this author says over there. Let's think about, uh, what God's like. Let's think about whether or not, um, the God who has shown himself in the cross and the resurrection as the kind of God who is willing to die for his enemies, to uh, suffer judgment in their place, so we know his judgment is never unjust. What would that God do? Right? Is a God who is infinite and utterly beyond me, and who would who does what I would never do? Like I would never suffer the judgment of my enemies in their place while they're currently accusing me, and 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 mm-hmm. and while they're currently trying to put me to death and say, oh, I will accept the death penalty you deserve in your place man, I am not that God, but he mm-hmm. is. In which case, yeah. do I have reason to trust that there's maybe something going on here more than what it initially seems like? Do I, do I trust God enough to give him the benefit of the doubt and slow down, not maybe accept an easy answer for these texts? I do think sometimes people try and defend these texts with just a, you know, a quick, easy answer of like, well, God does what we want. He can kill what he wants. He can do it. And, and so we actually accept a much harsher answer than um, I think these texts are pointing us to. And I think uh, we even need to or, or should. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't want to give a yeah. quick, easy answer that, that roughs over. Uh, they're very real. I, I think I think the concerns of them are real. They're understandable. I've yeah. had them. I do have them. But it, I so that's the long and the short of it is. Think about some of the things we know for sure. All right, let's slow down and let's let's take some time thinking about these texts yep. in context, and mm-hmm. and and let's see what we we think at the end of them. So that that's kind of how I pastorally talk about it. And honestly, that's a similar approach to what I would take. Is I would jump to Jesus and say this this is, but I would go this is our clearest picture of who God is. And so I would say let's go death, burial, resurrection. That's who God is. Yeah. Um, now that's my natural move. You talked about earlier about privileging and having a canon within a canon. Yeah. Um, my canon within the canon is the Gospels, and specifically death, burial, resurrection is kind of where I like. That's the centerpiece of that. Mm-hmm. You, you criticize what is the flaw? 
would you would you be, would it be fair to say that you criticize the idea of having a canon within a canon? I want to say that I don't see Jesus having one. So okay. I, I I I don't see. I, I'm looking at what Jesus does with the Old Testament, and um, I see him affirming it all over the place. I see him referencing. Uh, even in even the even some of the intense parts, right? Um, that that we would think, oh well, that doesn't fit with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't seem to have trouble referencing, you know, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, or Tyre and Sidon, or or um, or Noah and the flood, or any of these any of these issues, these these moments of judgment, and then warning people on their basis to flee mm-hmm. from their sins and repent. And so I look at Jesus, and he says that you know, not a jot or a tittle of the law. I look at Jesus and he says that the word of God will not be broken. And, and I think it's John 10. I see Jesus and I see Jesus appealing consistently to scripture and holding it up as authoritative. And I think, well, Jesus is my savior. Uh, Jesus is, you know, the, 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 the word of God incarnate. He doesn't seem to repudiate the word of God written. And so I think, you know what, I will look at it in light of Christ, but I won't look at it and then reject parts of it. Um, I might see that you know what he has he has changed things because you know what now he showed up and that mm-hmm. changes the story to kind of like a NT writes five act hermeneutic right he talks about the fact that we're we're in a story we're in a we're is it four act four or five um, we're in a progressing story and yeah we've reached a new act and the new player on the scene uh, Jesus happens to be the author and 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 we're in a new play and we we are a new part of the play. Um, and we don't act out the way we used to act, uh, but that doesn't mean that what happened before didn't happen, right? Because yeah. this scene in the play only makes sense in light of the ones that came before. Uh, it, it's, it's only, you know, it, hermeneutically and semantically and so on and so forth, it only makes sense in light of the Old Testament. And I, I don't think Jesus changes that. Although I do, I do agree with you. I'd say let's go to Jesus. Let's look at him. Let's really look at him. And, uh, and, and so that's, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm fine with, start, I always try and start kids at the middle or kids, people at the middle and say, let's look at Jesus and then work our way out. You know, if you're weirded out by revelation, if you're, you don't know what to do with yeah, three yeah. chapters of Genesis or four or whatever, I mean, did the resurrection happen? Yes. Okay. Let's, let's, let's work it out from there. Let's figure it out yeah. from there. That's kind of, so yeah. that's part of how I think of things. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that too. You start with Jesus, start resurrection, start right there. So we're, we're starting from the same place. Um, now, I typically think that when Paul and the other New Testament writers reference the Old Testament, they are reading Jesus into stuff that maybe wasn't intentionally in the first audience would have been Jesus. And so I think they have, as I understand it, a willingness to play fast and loose with the Old Testament as a way of reading Jesus into it. Yeah. Uh, not, not in a disrespectful way, but in a way that would have been culturally appropriate in the first century. Um, like when Paul says Jesus is the rock, referencing uh, yeah. the first Corinthians text. Yeah. I don't really think Jesus was there, but I, think, I don't think Paul literally thinks Jesus was there, but I think he sees Jesus in that story. Yeah. And so that's a way of re-understanding the Old Testament because of Jesus. I see the discomfort on your face. Well, no, I, share I, with yeah, I'm thinking about what you're saying. I'm thinking about what you're saying. Um, I think, you know, so the fact, it's funny, I, I'm, I'm actually in a class right now on the Old Testament, use of the New Testament. So we'll, we'll see, we'll get there. Um, I, okay. so I, I actually think, uh, I do think the authors reread the Old Testament in light of Christ. Um, I, I think they reread it, uh, sophisticated in a sophisticated manner 
in light of Christ. I don't think they play fast and loose. I think that they, I, I also think they do it um, under His inspiration and um, mm-hmm. and after Him. I think, in a sense, Jesus taught them how to read the Old Testament right in light of all that He has said He is and all that He's shown Himself to be. So, Luke twenty-four, you know, Jesus shows them from Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, mm-hmm. that you know all that was supposed to happen in the Messiah. Um, and I think Paul does the same. He learned the same. But I think what Paul is often doing is he's he's using a sophisticated hermeneutic to see a unity between the acts of God in the Old Testament and the acts of God in the New Testament. And, you know, in that same First Corinthians ten, he says, you know, these things happened. Uh, you know, as a, these happened, these things happened, um, and were written down as an example for us. Um, and and then he goes on to draw conclusions on that basis for us. So that so the point is, you know, hey. Back when they tempted in the in the desert, God sent the destroyer, right? They were struck down. This many people fell at this moment. You know, they got up to rise and play, and then you know, eighteen thousand or whatever it is, and then right after that, he says, "Okay, so do you think you're stronger than God? You know, should you tempt him?" And then he fills in Christ, and he says, "Christ is the God of the Old Testament, the God who did those things." In which case, are are you sure you want to test him? And I think that's not an, too aggressive of a read because if you read right after that. Um, his warning against them is um, in chapter 11, don't eat the Lord's Supper unworthily, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a th- there's a threat attached to it. I mean, that's a freaky text. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I, I preaching that on a Sunday would be weird. But um, <laughs> there, I, I think he's he's discerning a unity. And in fact, this is one of the one of the uh, Chris Tilling his uh, his book Paul's Divine Christology. I don't know if you take it in the way I'm taking it, but um, one of the most brilliant things about that argument is he's arguing that from, you know, about chapter 8 to, you know, chapter 10 to 11, um, Paul keeps on talking about the relationship between uh, the church and Christ on analogy with the relationship between Israel and, and Yahweh. And so that includes everything from loyalty to jealousy, to God's jealousy and Christ's jealousy for his church. And then and then the, the threat of worshiping other gods and then you know you know having communion with them and 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 the problems involved in that um, and then what we're supposed to be doing and so I think what his argument depends on a theological unity of the actors involved. I mean, he's saying I mean for for Paul Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus mm-hmm. is you know God in the flesh. He is the God of Israel. There's one Lord, one Christ. In which case, what the God of God of Israel did, Jesus did. Um, and, and so I don't think he, I don't think he's, he kind of reads him in in such a way. I mean, even if he plays fast and loose in the way that you're talking about, um, he's still reading a unity of, of character and a unity of being uh, such that we it's it's not corrective. It's it's possibly clarifying um, in, in the sense of fullness. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Darth Vader doesn't stop being, uh, you know, Dark Lord of the Sith, when you find out that he's Luke's father, it's just, what? oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I'm Come sorry. On, spoiler man. alert. 50 years, 40 years late. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, maybe that's not the best analogy because I'm not trying to say the father's a Dark Lord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> leave it to a Calvinist. Um, <laughs> guys, yes. Yes. That's, that's us. Yeah. Um, but, but okay. you see what, it's, a, it's a different kind of, uh, <laughs> it's a different kind of narrative clarity. Uh, and a different kind of unfolding um, realization. It doesn't yeah. violate what came before. It does cast in a slightly new light. 
Yeah. Um, and so that's more positively. Yeah, no, no, I, obviously I, I get your where you're going with the metaphor. One of the, <laughs> which is, I like that, that's good. Um, so one of the, the, the phrase you use is, or you talk about the idea of a mutable God. God doesn't change. Does God change? And as I understood BZ, I, I don't think that he's saying that God changes as much as the revelation of God is, full, is most fully seen yeah. in Jesus. So it's not that God changed from, you know, angry Old Testament God to loving Jesus, which is Marcion, right? Like that's no, Marcion no, no. 101. And I, I don't think and, he's saying that. I don't and, think he's saying that. But I think one of the best critiques that you had is why does God let God be portrayed in a monstrous way in the Old Testament if God is so adamant about there being no false images about God? And so you use the metaphor of God as the golden calf. Like the Old Testament God, are you saying God is like this golden calf that God allowed that to take place? Which I think is a very healthy, healthy corrective for me to think through because I, I can go down that road a whole lot easier to, to get to that conclusion yeah. that God allowed God's people to misrepresent God to some degree yeah. in the Old Testament. Um, yeah. And I, I think with issues of fundamental character, I mean, the Exodus text, Exodus 30, uh, 34, six to seven. I mean, when he gives you a, when he gives Moses a gloss on his name, he says, this is what I'm like. And he has both aspects. He's, he's this, but even though there is an, there is a, there is a, an accent on, um, you know, the fact that he forgives and is faithful to the thousandth generation, right? There is a, there is a, there is an emphasis in his character on his gracious forgiving mercy. I will preach that till kingdom come. But at the same time, there's a, there's still a unity in that between the, 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 the grace and the, and the, and that, as well as the, the retributive judge, judgment and the, uh, holding, holding the guilty to an account. And I think, I think that is a tension that is only fully resolved in the cross of Christ, I, 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 so I do think that there is a, there, there are tensions of like, how is God going to be faithful to saving this people who are so perverse when he has promised to be the kind of good God who doesn't treat sin lightly and treats, treats it as it deserves? How is he going to, how's he going to pull that off? And then you realize, oh goodness, he does it in Christ. He does it in the cross. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that's and, another thing. And yeah. I, and I love that. And obviously that's, that's Tom Wright, you know, God being faithful to God's promises to Israel and obviously through yeah. the entire world through Israel. So again, I'm, I'm, I would be liking that tweet, tweet right there. I like that. There we go. There God's we go. faithful to God's promises. Yes, I agree. And how does that happen? That's the big thing. Like, obviously Jesus is that cataclysmic, the apocalyptic moment that changes everything. The, Amen. I guess I'm comfortable saying in the Old Testament, there are, time, there are times that Israel didn't fully understand what God was because it didn't have as clear a picture as we do in Jesus. And would you say that God is more clearly revealed in Jesus than what we have in the Old Testament text? Um, this is really hard. Um, lang- the language here can go so many different ways. I want to say, I want to say, yes, he is more clearly revealed. Mm-hmm. I want to say that he is clearly re- revealed to be consistent with the God of the Old Testament, though, in sometimes paradoxical ways. Okay. So I think there are there are surprising consistencies. I think there are consistencies that we wouldn't have seen coming. I think, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, so I think, what yes, you, we, what we you, see new things in the New Testament. Yeah. But I don't think they're not consonant with what we see in the Old Testament. Okay, you keep going back to this consistent theme. What do you feel like you lose if God is inconsistent 
in the way that God is revealed in the Old Testament compared to in the person of Jesus? Um, I, I think I think a few things. I think you threaten the unity of I think you threaten the unity of Revelation uh, and the unity of the covenants. You know, is is the God of Jesus Christ really the God of of the Old Testament people? Is he did did he does he keep his promises to Israel? Uh, are all his promises to Israel really yes in Jesus Christ, as Paul says? Mm-hmm. Are, you know, it, so there's the unity of the covenants. There's the unity of revelation. There's, there's, there's Explain God's, the revelation, unity of re- well, revelation. Yeah. So, you know, the, God has given, I think God, God shows himself to be a speaking God. He says things. He tells us about himself. I think we only know God by revelation. Um, you know, God's a person. Uh, I can only know a person really if they tell me about themselves. Um, and so there, there is this, I'll put it this way. When I read Hebrews 1, and it talks about the fact that, you know, in, in various times, in various ways, he spoke through his you know, prophets and so on and so forth. But in these latter days, he's, he's spoken to us in his son. I think that matter is a, it's, it's a matter of putting an exclamation point on what he was saying before, of, of putting flesh. Uh, it's, it's the word made flesh, right? The mm-hmm. words I was always saying that's what I, that's what I am now being in your presence. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, and, and so that's, there's that unity of revelation there where, um, the word becomes flesh and, and what he was always saying is now concrete and seen and taste and heard and, and touched mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a different mode, but it's not necessarily different content. He's always been the God. This is this is the this is the appeal of Paul in in in, uh, in Galatians, right? He's always been the God who's justified on the basis of faith, not on the basis of the Mosaic covenant, right? His 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 appeal there is to say we've got a we've got a continuous narrative, and God's plan was always to justify Gentiles on the basis of faith because you know He gave the promises to bless. Is bless the world through Israel and Abraham uh, back to Abraham back when he was a you know a, a godless idol uncircumcised idolater, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got this unity of appeal between the God who saved then and the God who saved now, and this was always his intention, even if it wasn't as clearly seen. Uh, but now it's paradoxically brought to fruition in Christ. Um, so that's one thing I think you lose. Um, I think I mean I think you lose. I think you lose just aspects of God's character, right? I, I actually think I actually think the justice of God, which include including but is not limited to um, retribution. I think that's actually that's actually good. God God's goodness is a matter of Him keeping His word. Mm-hmm. God's goodness is a matter of Him um, taking human sin seriously. God's goodness is a matter of Him um, saying that that violations of the image of God are not to be tolerated and I won't for long and they will be addressed and righted. I think it's a comfort to the weak and oppressed throughout the world. I think, I think it's a, I think it's a comfort to the suffering church and in, in the majority world. I think it always has been. I think you know, it's why you see it in letters like first and second Peter and, and in Paul's Paul's letters in revelation, uh, you know, I know there's metaphorical and symbolic language going on there, but there is a consistent theme. And I tried to highlight that in, in some of those texts where, where there's a comfort in saying, you know, you keep persisting in doing good and leave, leave that to God. He'll get, he'll, he'll take care of it. Yeah. And I he'll, thought it, yeah. And I thought it was a nice touch that you reference uh, Miroslav Volf's stuff on how yeah. the suburban liberal 
can get rid of wrath easier than someone who actually is on the short end of literal genocide. And I, I think that's the, be, the best corrective on why wrath is actually a substantial thing that we don't want to jettison because of that very context. I, so I, I, I appreciate your move there. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm 100% on board, but I, I get the logic yeah. behind it. I, I, I get that. I get that. I, and Paul's been influential. I think Fleming Rutledge treats it well in The Crucifixion. Um, and you know, on the, on the wrath issue, um, I, you know, I don't want to literalize wrath like he talks about. I, I don't think I did. I, I think that I have a doctrine of analogy and, and, and so on and so forth. But I do think wrath language speaks to and refers to God as do more, most anthropomorphisms do, right? To speak about the fact that, you know, is the Lord's arm too short? Well, we're not talking about what size shirt we should get him, right? We're talking, we are, it is, it is metaphorical language to talk about something that God actually has, which is his strength, mm-hmm. right? And in the same way, I think anthropopathisms, like um, talking about God's anger and God's uh, wrath, speak to something about God, which is how he views gross evil, uh, what he wills to do about it, and then what he actually does about it. And those are, those are, you know, that, that might be a tech, technical way of putting it, but I do think that that's what these anthropopathisms are, are, are speaking to the same, same way when we talk about his, his guts churning with mercy and compassion. It talks about how he views our pitiful state and what he wants to do about it and, and, and save us. And, and even, even the, the visceral language of, of love that he has, you know, oh, Ephraim, how can I let you go? It's, it's an anthropopathism about how he views um, his commitment to his covenant people. Um, so I'm just saying we need to take all of that seriously, all of them. And I think they all have a good place in a full orbed picture of, of, of this infinite God who is um, revealed to us in Christ. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's kind of what I see there. Okay. I, mean, I don't know how clear that was, but well, I told you we'd do 20 to 30 minutes. We're now at 45. Um, Whoa. this was on your side. You would say clearly God predestined it to go this long. So you can't be upset. Um, I know, I, yeah. but I, I almost want to go. I, we're over way over time. Otherwise I would want to go down the road about anthropomorphisms when the definition is like God takes on human characteristics that maybe aren't, are metaphorical, not literal, how God feels. Because I think there's a whole other conversation to go down there. Um, there. There is. There's a very good one to have there. But we'll save the open theism conversation for some other time. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's baked in. That's baked into it. Yep, which yeah. I'm, I'm far more comfortable. You literally were scratching your head as soon as I said the word. Uh, or the no, phrase open. okay. Th- I, I'm smoothing my hair. Just, yeah. just, it looks good. You, it, know. you look great. You look great. Yeah, I'm, I just hope it comes out good on the podcast. It's, yeah, your hair is going to be wonderful. Um, Okay, so going in this conversation, I had a couple spots on my top five favorite Calvinists open, and there's two couple firmly entrenched. But I feel like you're you're in the conversation now. You you can make oh, the top wow. five. So, wow. congratulations. Yes. Thank you, thank you, Luke. All right, man. Thank well, you. Thanks for the time. Uh, this has been, I think, a healthy conversation, and uh, we're going to hear more uh, from BZ. Get a little bit more on his side of this a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, keep up the good work. Good luck with the uh, doctorate, man. Yeah, man, now I got to go do classwork. So, (laughs) all right, man. Good luck. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that one. Don't forget, our sponsor for this month is our friends at Podbean. For all your podcast hosting and publishing needs, go to podbean.com backslash newsworthy, and they will take care of you 
And don't forget about the new mobile app. You can post, publish, and record podcasts directly from your smartphone. Check them out. Podbeam. And don't forget uh, the second part of this conversation, Brian Zahn. It will be, uh, it'll be out soon. So look forward to it. Bye-bye. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.